Greetings, this is Jason Hill, and this is the podcast version of Into the Gap, which airs every Saturday morning from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Central on WCGO Radio, 1590 a.m. and 95.9 FM in Chicago. Hey, good morning, everyone. This is Mike Sherrick. This is Jason Hill. This is Into the Gap, and this is WCGO Chicago. Welcome. Jay, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. You look very laid back and very, you know, clean cut and happy this morning. So it's good to see you. I'm always happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't, I, don't, I, I really, um, very even keel person. Until you're fired up though. I've seen you fired up, man. <laughs> no, even when I'm fired up, I'm fired up, but not in a sort of unraveling sort oh, of Oh no, way. not at all. No, you you're, know, you're, very, um, you're always My work it. keeps me anchored. I'm a workaholic. So I just yeah. work and I, that keeps me anchored to the world. How is work now? Are you in? The, you're still in the summer break, aren't you? Oh yeah, I'll be on summer break until <clears throat> September. Oh okay, yeah. early September, yes. Yeah, you wanted to touch base a little bit on the, you know, some schools are coming back, some aren't. Some are doing mostly online stuff. The I know the Ivy League is is you know demonstrating yeah. abundance of caution. Well, I mean, it's. I mean, look, this is all crazy because. Um, I think a lot of the universities are taking their cues from the CDC recommendations mm-hmm. and the their local governors. Yeah. And so um, I know Harvard is doing some online courses and the Ivy Leagues are doing a combination of online and face-to-face. Like Harvard is admitting yeah. 1,200 something students. And what do they normally have? About 8,000? Yeah. Yeah. DePaul is doing <clears throat> a few face-to-face, but mm-hmm. mostly online. But there are a couple of problems. One is a lot of the, um, you know, the, we're seeing an uptick in the student population. So we don't even know if these students who are becoming infected yeah. uh, will be coming back to school because there's a massive uptick in the, in the student, young, in the student population. So yeah. <clears throat> with it, with the infection rate surging, also a lot of schools are predicting now that had planned for face-to-face mm. Um, they're getting reports because I keep up with this stuff. They're getting reports from students who are saying um, we're not actually coming back in the fall. Students who even had registered for online, I'm sorry, for face-to-face courses um, are saying we're not coming back in the fall. So everything is pretty much indeterminate and very sort of up for grabs. Um, A lot of face-to-face courses are going to be canceled because the students are, um, the projection is that the students are either going to be sick or are not going to put themselves in a situation where um, they're going to be, they think they'll become sick. Yeah. Um, So. Yeah. This is wild, man. This definitely has not gone away. It's not. No. And uh, it's interesting. You know, again, when I, when I think of uh, colleges, uh, unlike you, I'm not an academic. And my first place I look at, especially in the fall is college football. (laughs) And it's it's really been interesting to see what's going on. The Big Ten and um, I believe the SEC mm-hmm. have uh, cut out all non-conference games, and I'm mm-hmm. not sure what that's for. Um, but they're no longer going to play outside their conference; they're just going to play inside their conference. And I don't know if that's a setup for canceling the season or moving the season or doing something like that, or some feign of control or what it is. But I, I'm not sure what any of this is doing. You know, I know, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a big fan of Clemson. I follow Clemson. And they had 37 of the 112 guys. I told you this a couple of weeks ago. 37 of 112 guys um, tested positive. Right. And so they quarantined them and shut down their preseason workouts and stuff like that. So I don't know what this is going to be, you know. 
I mean, my belief is this, this COVID thing, we have not got our hands around it. Um, we don't know how it, it seems like it's going to be years before we really understand it. You know? Right. I mean, we do know that, you know, over 40 Florida hospitals yesterday maxed out at ICU capacity. Did they? Um, yeah. 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 In Florida. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there's some similar occurrences in Texas. In Texas. Yeah. You know? I think in Houston, they've maxed out now in the ICU beds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know what really upset me this week was mm -hmm. um, the decision by the president and the uh, to authorize ICE to, you know, um, basically kick out the international students um, who are taking courses online. Yeah. And it bothered me as a educator of 24 years, mm -hmm. as someone who was once an international student. And, yeah. um, and uh, you know, for many reasons, one is this country faces a short, a massive mm -hmm. shortage um, of students in aeronautical engineering in all the engineering yeah. fields in the medical yep. schools in computer science. When yeah. you, when you look at the, these programs without international students, a lot of these disciplines are just going to fold. Yeah. I know at DePaul, for example, we have three PhD programs, philosophy, psychology, and computer science. Mm -hmm. We don't have enough Americans. And this is just DePaul. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> we don't have enough American students, black, white, brown, sure. fill the PhD programs. Those PhD programs are filled by foreign students. Really? Okay. We have a massive shortage of nurses. I have eight family members, mm -hmm. all immigrants in this country who are working as doctors right now yeah. uh, in the hospitals. And they're my cousins. They're all my, they're my age. So they came. I, pretty, I bet you, you know, though, the restaurant and uh, entertainment management courses in the, um, you know, communication courses are filled with Americans. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. But they tell me that they're appalled. My cousins tell me that they're actually appalled that uh, the shortage of American doctors in the hospitals and nurses. Well, you know, Jay, we can get into, um, you know, that's, that, I think that's a whole other conversation. And I, we could bring a, some people in here that can address that. Because it, what I think is happening is one of, the, one of the challenges, and you, you talk about it, about the vitality that we, that is so classically American. Um, one of the things I see is missing, and, and, and I, it's really become apparent to me during the COVID thing, is this absence of vitality, this unwillingness to work through a problem. And when you talk about STEM courses or when you talk about medicine or when you talk about engineering, those are all disciplines where you actually engage in and work through problems. And when you, when you engage in something where you work through a problem, there's a real high likelihood you're going to fail, at least part of the way in it, you know. And we have not developed, our culture no longer has much of a tolerance for any level of failure. Mm -hmm. And that's really, really, really concerning for me, you know? And, um, and, 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 you know, you've reflected on it a number of times about how these, these very important disciplines in education, which are, are, are grounded in fact and grounded in practice, and grounded in learning are, are becoming less and less populated by Americans of all flavors, not just white Americans or black Americans, but all Americans, you know? And it, it speaks to relatively the soft underbelly of our culture that we have gotten to be pretty, I don't know what the, I don't know what the right word is, but um, not very resilient, you know? Probably we've gotten to be pretty fragile is probably the right word. Yeah, you know? no fragile. 
and um, and that's not that doesn't speak good for anything, you know, and uh, and and greedy. So we, we're both greedy and fragile, which is I don't think is a good combination, right? You know, so. But uh, but yeah, that's that's true. At the same time, I'm trying to wrap my head around the logic of why we need to eliminate these students from. Yeah. That's, I, I, I don't get it. You know, it, it sounds to me it's part of, you know, he's got kind of a nationalistic agenda. And, you know, um, it, it, it sounds to me like it's a little bit of red meat is what it sounds to me like. I mean, these in the in I mean, I came here 35 years ago and yeah. these students, uh, many of whom today are the financiers, the venture capitalists mm-hmm. of this country. Yeah. Um, many of whom are filling the vacuums mm-hmm. that um, we or the, the shortages that I've talked about. These are the international students who would graduate and would be get a job here, mm-hmm. be sponsored by their companies, get a green card, mm-hmm. and then five years later would become citizens and would would become thriving entrepreneurs, yeah. venture capitalists, doc- yeah. lawyer, doctors. Um, scientists, really good scientists, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and would become American citizens. Would yeah. part of the the fabric that George George W. Bush would always talk about as someone who was absolutely not a nativist. Yeah, would talk about part of in his during his presidency would always talk about the importance of immigration and immigrants to the, the identity of America. That immigrants are not inimical or anathema to the identity of America. They're not, they don't pose national security threats. I mean, some. <laughs> no, I think for the most part, if you look at this country, almost every great city, almost every culture is, is webbed into it, is uh, immigration. I can't imagine what Chicago would have been with, without the whole blend of different people coming in, right? right? I mean, I told you that first neighborhood I lived in when I was a little kid, they spoke seven different languages on my block. Yeah. You know, everybody was an immigrant and, and it's what, and I spoke, you know, Southside Chicago, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, but everybody, I mean, that's what makes this country so fantastic. That that's what makes this country so unique to the rest of the world, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. is the ability to have people come in from all over the place and then work together to create a common, you know, government. There's uh a lot of conversation around some of the, these Confederate monuments and the taking down of, of mm-hmm. you know, Confederate monuments in the South. And you said you were on a TV show this week, right? Last week, Last yeah. Week. Uh, okay. Yeah, talking about it. And um, um, I mean, I, I think that, look, there, I'm an independent conservative who wants yes. to think very carefully through this conversation and... Um, I think that there are a set of mythologies and these monuments don't represent facts. Mm-hmm. They are, they're symbols and all symbols have to be interpreted. Yeah. And there are a set of common myths that this country has treated as facts. And these facts in some sense have to be, these, these mythologies have to, I think have to be reinterpreted. And America has treated these mythologies as if they're facts in order to maintain its innocence mm-hmm. and to preserve its innocence and a kind of purity. And I've written quite extensively about the moral meaning of America. 
uh, and what that means and how, how do we decipher the moral meaning of America given its ugly past and its racial, its, the moral defect it was born with by inheriting the legacy of slavery and having that be constitutive with the, uh, with the, with the constitution. And I can see why people on some sense want to hang on to some of those mythologies that give them some sort of continuity with a past that is mm -hmm. constitutive of their identity, that yeah. is Southerners. Yeah. Um, I can also see why, given where we are in 2020 mm -hmm. and how far we have come in terms of race relations and yeah. how far we've come in terms of progress and uh, the full legal standing of blacks and other minorities mm -hmm. before the law. Mm -hmm why these symbols that I think in many respects, in several respects are, one could say racism or, or concretized racism in the public sphere. The question is, should they be in the public sphere? Should mm -hmm. they not be in museums? Do we need to have yeah. them displayed yeah. in the public sphere? The public sphere is a, is a shared space for all. Mm -hmm. And the question is, do we need to have race symbols that are emblematic of a racist past be in the public sphere that are mm -hmm. shared by people who are victimized by the representatives of these symbols? Yeah. So I think a happy medium would be <clears throat> to maybe have a conversation about putting these symbols, mm -hmm. these monuments in a museum mm -hmm. Right, where the history, because I don't believe in cancel culture. I don't believe right. in erasing history. Right. I think that's a bad idea. I think our history, ugly yep. or beautiful, has to be preserved. Mm -hmm. It needs to be preserved. People should not forget the ugliness of slavery, the Correct. ugliness of segregation. Yeah. But the question is do we need, what are we memorializing? What are we celebrating? When we look at these yeah. monuments and we look at, and, at, the, at the, the, the racist, philosophy espoused and promulgated by these uh, figures, what are, what are we really memorializing? What are we really celebrating? Are we, because that's what we do when, we, when mm -hmm. we put these figures in a public sphere, we're, we're somehow celebrating something. Yeah. Um, and, and should that be celebrated? Yeah. Or should we more take a more neutral stance and say, look, this is a part of history and that's the place of a museum. Yeah, it's a neutral stance that the state takes. Yeah, so that's that's my take. I don't believe. Let me say that one's feelings provide a criterion for destroying any kind of monument. So on the show, I said, "Look, there has to be a proper public conversation." I am not out to defend vandalism of any sort. Right. I don't think that people have a right to just go around knocking down and by the way these 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 vandalists are knocking down the statues of abolitionists mm -hmm. oh, i know they did one in and i Madison, named a lot Wisconsin. of the abolitionists yeah. including one uh, i think his last name was farragut who paid he was he was an advocate of black voting rights he yeah. paid for a lot of black kids to go to school he paid for he paid for teachers out of their pockets yeah out of his own pockets for black black kids to go to school his statue was vandalized, as was the 54th Regiment, uh, a group of, of, of Black Union fighters in Boston. So these yeah. vandalists are taking down, with equal aplomb, uh, 
black union members, uh, white, white Southerners who defected from the South and joined the North to yep. fight against slavery. Yep. It's a kind of relativism. It's a kind of nihilism. They're yeah. not making any kind of distinction between who was an oppressor and who was a liberator. And this is what kind of bothers me. This is a kind of mayhem that is taking loose, taking root in our streets. There needs to be a proper conversation. I'm all for peaceful protests, by the way. Oh, yeah. That's part of our first... Our, our, um, first and fourth amendment. First, right, yeah. right? So yeah. we can have protests and mm -hmm. we can, people can register their pro, their 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 grievance in the public sphere in a peaceful way. Absolutely. Jay, the, the thing, you know, it, it, you, you brought up so many good points. Thing that I'm seeing is, first of all, um, I think we've got to be really careful with language now, um, and what we're communicating, and really responsible on the side of the communicator, um, and because of social media and a whole lot of other reasons, and you know, 15 second sound bites and TikTok and stuff like that. I don't think we're so careful about actually the words we're using. We're more about the impact it has and the feelings it creates. Um, so we got to be really careful about the language you use. But one, one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm seeing, and, and so one of the words that, that kind of rackles me a little bit is the word racist, you know? And it's used, it's used quite a bit. And, uh, and I get it. I, I, I get from, a, from a, uh, especially from a black person's perspective, how things can occur as racist. But... What I also see is one of the things that's really prevalent to me and, and, and sticks out like just an incredible sore thumb is the amount of ignorance that exists. And like you were talking about, the belief in mythology that's not based in facts, you know, and the absence of real research and real inquiry and really getting down to what really did happen and what is happening and what are the reasons for this. You know, there's just a tremendous amount of ignorance, and we've been operating on top of a tremendous amount of ignorance, you know? Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think that's the thing. And the only way to, to engage in that is through is what you're talking about, is through conversation. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so, conflicted is the wrong word. There's so many contradictory perspectives, you know? And we were talking a little bit before the show. I don't deal well in ambiguity and contradiction and things like that it, you know typically for me the the you know it gets to pretty clear pretty quick and it's not so clear for me right now and mm -hmm. and I'm wrestling I'm really really wrestling with it I think it's good because I'm noticing my own ignorance mm -hmm. but I'm also noticing the collective ignorance that's out there you know on both sides um and there's uh there seems to be, be um a narrative going on right now, and it's what you're talking about, that's feeding the vandalism mm -hmm. that seems to be empowered and to be identified as the right narrative. And I don't think it is. And the result of that is the ability for people to go and destroy property that isn't theirs or public property or make decisions on public space that isn't within the structure of our culture that would make it work. You know, if it makes sense to take down a statue of Robert E. Lee, take down the statue of Robert E. Lee, but let's have a conversation about it, you know? And, you know, that's what, that's what, that's what's, there's, there's so much emotion driving all this, you know? And, um, 
I, I'm, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's just really, really interesting what's all going on. And I, I saw this this short film last night um, called the, uh, the the Stone Ghost of the South, mm-hmm. and it was it's it's a film made by this guy Tremaine Lee, and really a thoughtful film, clearly biased, clearly from his perspective. He owns it one hundred percent. His family, he's a descendant of slaves from Georgia, right? And so he's really looking at, like he's really questioning why the the statues of Confederacy still exist and and what people are getting from it. And and then he's also inputting like what's the impact on people whose lineage is similar to his. Mm-hmm. You know? So and we've never talked about this. We never thought about it, right? And um it it's it's really interesting to, to get the perspective, the perspective of the guys from the South and, and also the perspective of the, the black people that have lived with this stuff mm-hmm. quietly for a hundred, you know, most of this stuff came around. It came around, you know, after the, after the World War II, there was the, the reconstruction that was led mm-hmm. by, you know, President Grant. And then, but after the reconstruction, there was this whole thing where the big, you know, around the turn of the century where the Ku Klux Klan got a lot of power. And this whole resistance to the Reconstruction, which we don't talk about. That's a part of history that, that kind of has been not discussed. You know? Well, people, I mean, there's a general problem with talking about racism. I'm surprised. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've always claimed I, I don't adhere to a cult of victimology. But yeah. that's not to say that I'm, I've never experienced racism. I'm surprised right. that how many people, few people, uh, whites in particular, have said to me, What's been your experience with race in America? Yeah. We don't really like to talk about race. Right. Racism in America. You yeah. know, Germany has dealt with the Nazi past. Yeah. They've had a conversation. South Africa has had a, a series of truth and reconciliation hearings where blacks did not enact. Well, I'll tell you right, what. A vendetta against whites for apartheid. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, yeah. let's talk about how we can actually have this conversation authentically. How we yeah. can have this conversation about race and not have it happen to be a defensive one but have it be a productive one because mm-hmm. I think that's really what's needed. And it's, it's scary because you're going to have to admit what I talked about earlier, your ignorance. So mm-hmm. we'll be back in two minutes, everyone. This is Mike Jason Hill into the gap. Jason Hill here. And I want to let you know that you're listening to the podcast version of into the gap, which airs every Saturday from nine to 10 AM central on WCGO radio. Tune in live from 1590 AM and 95.9 FM, the smart talk app, Tune in or WCGORadio.com. The podcast is available from Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Find it, rate it, and subscribe. If you'd like to get in touch about the show or inquire about sponsorship opportunities and rates, please reach out to my co-host Mike at MikeShrek at gmail.com. Dallas Cowboy Hall of Fame coach Tom Landry once said, a coach is someone who has you see what you don't want to see and has you hear what you don't want to hear, so you can always be the person you knew yourself to be. Hello, I'm Mike Sherrick, founder and president of the Mike Sherrick Group and Mike Sherrick Coaching. We are an executive coaching and leadership development organization with offices in Berwyn, Illinois and Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Successful organizations begin with the self-awareness and authenticity of its leaders. And in today's world, we are all leaders. If you or your organization has a big vision, or you know there's another level you can go to, please give us a call at 630-643-6336. 
If you're one of the first three people who call us today, you will be eligible for a free IMX leadership assessment and debrief, a $550 value free to you and your organization. So give us a call at 630-643-6336 and take it on. Hello, we're back. This is Mike Sherrick. This is Jason Hill, the Sin of the Gap. Yeah, man. So how do you, how do you begin the conversation about race in America today? Well, it's, I think it's partly agreeing to talk about the existence of certain facts that a lot of people just don't want to accept. And here I'm going to say something. Sure. When people talk about so I've heard a lot of people say there's no such thing as systemic racism and there's no such thing as institutional racism. Yeah. And I think that's just a hot, that's just a trigger word. Mm-hmm. And what does it really mean to say that there is systemic racism? Well, first of all, it means admitting, before we even talk about what systemic racism means, mm-hmm. what would it mean to say that systemic racism could be possible? It means admitting something that is just true. It means that yeah. whites in general control all the major institutions of our society and set the policies that others must practice, right? Mm-hmm. So white people were, Jackie Robinson was the first black man that whites allowed to play major league football. Baseball. So as a, as baseball. a black person in this country, Mike, I major can, league baseball. I can, major league. Yeah. I as a black person can discriminate against you personally. Mm-hmm. And any black person in general can discriminate against a white person, but most black people in general can't, determine whether white people get to vote or not yeah they can't they can't they don't have the kind of institutional power to determine who gets an academy award or who gets um uh who gets let into the pantheon of various institutional domains isn't that the nature of being a minority though no, because that was in South Africa, blacks were the majority and whites were the minority. Okay. Right. So, okay. and whites, whites controlled, again, whites controlled all the institutional, uh, all the major institutions of society. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean being a majority or minority. So we just, we have to accept the fact that when we talk about systemic racism, we're not, we're not talking about indicting all white people right. as individual racists. Yeah. We're talking about the fact that in this country, it is a truth that white control all the major institutions of society and set the policies and practices yeah. that people must live by. It's not black people. Yeah. Um, and um, if you look at, for example, just looking at some of, I have a book here. I'm looking at the, um, the various, um, like if you look at the, the, ten, the, the U.S. Congress is 90% white. Mm-hmm. U.S. governors, 96% white. Top military advisors, 100% white. Uh, the U.S. House of Freedom Caucus, 90%, 99% white. Mm-hmm. Um, teachers are 82% white. I know in, in philosophy, there are 10,000 PhDs in philosophy. Mm-hmm. Of that, 120 are black. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Right? And that includes, most of them are Caribbean and Africans, very few African Americans. Really? Yeah, so that owners of men's profession, minority. right? Owners of owners of men's professional football teams, ninety-seven percent white. So we have to just admit that this is these are facts. Yeah. And so when we talk about systemic racism, we're talking about the extent to which the racism that permeates society 
is flows through the institutions that are controlled by whites. It doesn't necessarily mean that every single white person is a mm -hmm. racist. It means that the institutions of power are controlled by whites and that the racism that results is institutionally governed. If we could just get to that point of the conversation with facts, yeah. just yeah. like all these facts that I just, yeah. these are statistics. That you, are just you know, when you, when you say that, I'm thinking, the, the first thing I hear is the word racist. And when I hear racist, I have a, an emotional response to it. Because maybe maybe I'm not accurate in my perception of racism or what racists are, but when I hear racist, I also hear hate. I hear uh, bigotry. I hear tilting the playing field. I hear abuse. I hear all of this stuff. Right? What what you're describing to me is structural inequality, clearly, mm -hmm. and um, and with comes with that, especially when and here's the other thing that happens, man. When you have because you, when you have these big institutions, um, one, of the, one of the challenges with the institutions is there, there's so much power and so much influence by so few people, right? And when there's so much power and so much influence by so few people, the, the people running the thing very seldom get direct feedback. What they get is they get appeasement, they get smoke blown up their butts, they get uh, a bunch of sycophants, and they're not given direct feedback. So, mm -hmm. so what ends up happening is their natural biases and their natural perspective that is going to be all about them, it's all going to be self-centered, is going to dictate the actions and the, and the directives. So they're not going to take into account for one second how this is going to impact some black dude. Right. They're, they're, you know, is, is that racism or is that ignorance? The experience for the black person I clearly get can be occur as racism mm -hmm. but is the structure racist or is the structure just ignorance and unworkable and and i don't mean it to be semantical but if we're going to actually deal with the problem we got to deal with the problem you know well if it's if it's if it's a if it's a well this is where it becomes systemic if it's yeah. if it's exclusion yeah that becomes habitual or if it's exclusion mm -hmm. that is after knowledge yeah. of, of the exclusion mm -hmm. continues to perpetuate itself in perpetuity, mm -hmm. then I think it becomes racist. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. No, I, I I didn't see that, but I get it. Yeah. And and that's part of the good old boy network, right? That's right. I'm going to bring my guys in. I'm going to do this. I got this opportunity. I'm going to hit my guys up. There's no, there's no incentive to go outside of your own little sphere of influence, which we know, I don't care what it is. When you start hanging with your guys, you start to all look alike and sound like, alike and act like alike. Like the, the Boston police. The, the Boston, I spent time in Boston, the Boston police force. It's like, I wouldn't project the figure because I like to deal with facts, but it's, sure. I would say it's like 90-something percent Irish. Right? I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, <laughs> they and, all and, look alike. And they're all going to look alike, talk alike, sound alike. Talk they're going to do the same stuff. Alike. They're going to enjoy the same, hey, go see the socks. You know, let's park the car over by there. I mean, come on. Yeah, exactly. I know, I know, I know. At least the Chicago, the NYPD, the I Chicago, know. the LAPD, LA, you know, I know, it's a little bit more diverse. I've spent some time in Boston and I'm like, you all look alike. You all well, sound alike. I, 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 I tell you what's hilarious. And this, and you know, I love this, I love this, the, the town of Berwyn, you know, I, or the city of Berwyn. I just love it. And it's where I grew up. And it's, um, I, I think the guys over there are great and they're, and they do a great job. I mean, it celebrates diversity. It's, I think, I think 
Berwyn is one of the real gems of the Chicagoland area, right? And I know a little bit about the police department. <laughs> and what you're talking about is hilarious, Jay, because the Berwyn Police Department is about 80% Italian. Berwyn yeah. hasn't been even close to 80% Italian in 30 years, right? Right. It's probably right. got a 10% population of Italian people, but the police department are all these Italian guys. And it's so it's kind of, and they're good guys. Don't get me wrong, this is not an indictment, but it just points right. to the thing you're talking about that whenever you have a system, you know, yes. everybody starts, you know, you bring your bros in, you know? Yes. And yes. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's funny. It's like, <laughs> what's that, what's that band? The Wu Tang Clan, right? Yes, yes. There, there's no dorky white guys in that group, right? And there's like 10 dudes in it. And I love their music, but there's no there's no nerdy white dude in there. Why? Because they're not going to hang with those guys, you know. Right. So, and right. that's how we build that's how we build structures. So, it it, it just speaks to, I, I think that's the conversation we have to have. We've got to open ourselves up, and that begins with self awareness a little bit, and it begins mm-hmm. with with owning our own biases, you know, and and how comical they are. I mean, when when you're pointing about the, the various police departments, these various institutions, it's it's almost comical. Mm-hmm. Right, because everybody looks like they just came out of the same print press, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's mm-hmm. funny. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I think one of the gifts you have is you continually find yourself in ecologies where you're not one of them. You know, and I think that's one of the well, that gives you a really great perspective. Yeah, I'm the only black person in my department of 17 philosophers. No, I'm sure. And, and yeah. you know, when you go to a, a, a conservative convention, I, I, I bet you there's not a lot of gay black guys hanging out there. When I go to any convention yeah. Yeah. in academia, I mean any convention. Well, I, I'm even talking politically. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah, exactly. Oh, politically. Oh, oh, oh my God, no. Yeah, the, no. The, other, the other black conservative guy I know is Clarence Thomas. I think that's the two of you guys. Well, there might, no, there's, there's a couple of them. But I mean, it, it, there's not a tremendous amount of them, you know, and I think that gives you a really unique perspective. And I think that's why it's 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 always a, a joy to engage in these conversations with you because because you've got this ability to first of all, it's your full philosophical training, I think, to hold more than one thought in your head simultaneously, you know, yeah. and, and be able to look at it different ways. But yeah, it's it, this whole thing has been so so fascinating for me, man, because it's it's um what I'm what I'm present to is the pain and the heartbreak. Yes. You know, that's what I'm really present to. I, I, I'm present to um, the, the pain and the heartbreak that exists in the black community mm-hmm. and the frustration, I was, right? I was going to talk about that. I'm yeah. glad you mentioned that, yes. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really present to it. It, it, it. Before it just occurs like whining and complaining, it's not. It, it's no, not. they're real indignities that people suffer. Yeah, you yeah. And, and real, I mean, yeah. I have we compassion. Talk. Don't always agree. But I don't have to agree, you know, and I'll never walk in their shoes. So I'm never going to I'm never going to know. But I do have compassion for them as fellow humans, as brothers and sisters, as people that I love, as, you know, fellow travelers on this rock, you know. And, and I think that's where it begins is to really get curious what's going on over there. Because um, and, and, and it's not like, you know, I hear this thing like, you know, black folks are tired of educating white people, you know. It's not about it's not about educating you. It's about I want to know you. Yeah. You know, I want to be in relationship. I want to understand and then I also would like to be understood. You right. know? As opposed to, you know, one of the things I, I, I'm part of a group um and it's based in Oak Park, which is annoying in and of itself, right? 
but it's um, it, it's it, we have these town halls every week that really are discussing these issues, and it's fascinating to see. There's some really remarkable people there. There's a couple of remarkable women that are part of it that come in, and and, and they're both, you know, doctorates, and uh, they're 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 to create change, but. So, yeah, we're so, talking about having this conversation about race. Yeah, and I think, look, I think what I was thinking as we're on the break is that, yeah. you know, a lot of people say, like, in talking about racism and, and race issues, mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of, I've heard white white folks say, you know, how come we don't have White History Month? Like my students <laughs> would say, why don't we have White History Month? And I say, because white history is the norm. Yeah. The reason you have Black History Month is because a lot of the contributions that Blacks have made to Western civilization, American civilization, American culture, yeah. have been kept out of the history books. If, if they had been a constitutive part and wedded to the fabric of American history, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have had something called Black History Month. But white history, quote, unquote, white history is a norm. Yeah. So there's no need to have white history month because white history is a norm. It saturates everything. We don't have white film history because if you turn on your television from the 40s the 50s the mm-hmm. 60s the 30s the 20s the majority of films are in fact all the films are of white people you yeah. know um and that's what i mean by um the systemic suffusion of whiteness yeah. it's not to indict white people it's just to say that our and when people talk about white supremacy, this is another, but which I try to avoid because we yeah. no longer have an ideology that that sort of uh, advances the superiority of the white race right. as we did in the past. I mean, America used to have an explicit right. ideology where, and you had to demonstrate mm-hmm. um, that you were white in order to have citizenship. Yeah, and it wasn't until the 1965 Voting Rights Act that black women got the right to actually vote in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, given the history of this country's ugly racial past and some of its residual lingering effects. Yeah. You know, people have to take seriously the, it, the indignities that black people still suffer. I mean, look, we talked about this on your show. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I've got four college degrees, including a PhD. Yeah. I'm a college professor. When I'm in, dressed up in my cashmere coat, looking like a million dollars and yep. I get followed in a freaking store. Yep. I'm not look. I I don't have my my jeans hanging off my ass. Right. With my base with a baseball cap turned backward, looking like some you know <laughs> stereotypical <laughs> yeah. person of a bundle thing a black guy looks like. I've got my cashmere scarf from China, yeah. my cashmere coat, my gloves, and I'm being followed in a store. I'm like, but you know me. I I you don't mess right. with Jay. Right. Do not mess with Jay because I will. Cut a B-I-T-C-H. <laughs> so, you know, so I'm like, why are you following me? Yeah. Go do your job. Go yeah. now. Go. Go now. Yeah. Do I look like I need to rob your store? Do not follow me. Yeah. So I will call you on it. But what I'm saying is if I of all persons mm-hmm. who do not fit any of the racial stereotypes of, you know, what white people take to be a thug yeah. can be followed in a store and, and endure that kind of humiliation. Yeah. Well, I don't feel humiliated because my self-esteem and my Correct. whole psych- psychological template but doesn't be hassled and harassed. It just isn't worth it. But if I were raised in this country yeah. and I were socialized to mm-hmm. feel inferior to whites, if I did not, had not come to this country at the age of 20, but if I were raised black in this country and were raised to feel inferior to whites and to be raised with that kind of 
indignity that may not be visited upon one on a daily basis, but to endure that. Who, who is indoctrinating? I probably, would, I probably would feel like a different kind of person. And I, so I think when blacks, when black people say that they experience mm -hmm. racism, yeah, they should be listened to and not be said, "Oh, you have a chip on your shoulder." No, no, I, I, I'm getting that. Okay, because uh, what, what I, what I'm, what I'm really understanding is everyone has a subjective reality and that subjective reality is real. That is their truly as lived experience and your subjective reality and my subjective reality. And, and we could share the same experience could be completely different. So I'm getting that right. Um, I, I I'm curious, you, you know, you're talking about basically the indoctrination process of where black people are made to feel and experience being inferior to white people. And I'm wondering where does that occur? Part of the Mike, it's part of the construction of its country. No, and, and I don't mean I don't mean to be argumentative. I'm really I'm curious, like, you know, where is it showing up? Like, because the last thing I want to do is be part of that. You know, it's part it's part of the construction of its country going back from slavery. It's part of why we had why we, it's part of how black people were brought from Africa into this country. Yeah. It's part of the, the construction of slavery, the construction of Jim Crow laws, the the, the whole way in which. Uh, whites were made to feel that congenitally, constitutively, blacks are biologically, by nature, inferior creatures. That you don't dominate, you don't exercise lordship over people that you feel that you're, are your equals. So, so here's here's kind of a perspective I have, and and um, and I hear what you're saying, right? But I'm going to tell you, my experience was never that, and and part of it is because I was so all about sports, right? And the majority of my heroes in sports or the guys I looked up to or the guys that I emulated or the guys that I wanted to compete with were black guys, right? And I never, ever felt one second of superiority to them. Like I thought that, you know, I felt inferior in many ways. I couldn't run as fast, jump as high, throw as far, couldn't get as strong, no matter how hard I worked. It just seemed like, you know, and, and, and part of it gave me drive and, you know, to, to perform better. But, you know, there were dudes that were good. I mean, my favorite baseball player of all time to this day, my two favorite baseball players, Willie Mays and Dick Allen. Mm -hmm. You know, those guys were just, and they weren't big dudes. They were both like 5'11 and 185 pounds. Remarkable athletes. They weren't, they weren't way bigger than anyone else or way... They were just remarkable in the skill set that they were blessed with. And, and again, it's just it's this stupid thing as sports. But I'm just, I'm just saying, I've never looked at black folks and gone, you know, I'm superior to them. Right. And that's what I look. And this is the thing about racism. It's yeah. like, and you may even have grown up in a household. No, I did. I did grow up in a household that was, you know, my dad, right. my, my dad worked, was he, he was president of United Auto Workers Local. And United Auto Workers were the biggest contributors to Martin Luther King. So my mom, right. my mom grew up poor next to a, a black family in Tennessee. Right. You know, so you know they. It, it just that's not been my experience, and and I think that's where I'm having a hard time. And, I, and I'm not saying it's not the experience that goes on out there. I'm just I'm trying to right. understand because I want to make a difference. You know. Well, I think that people have to realize that their socialization not only takes place in their home, yeah. their socialization also takes place in a larger culture. Yeah. 
So socialization takes place in, in multiple spheres. Uh, socialization takes place in school. Socialization takes yeah. place in, in the, in, from the films that we watch, from right. the, the general messages that we get from the culture, from the cues that we get. So yeah. you can grow up in a very progressive house. One can grow up in a very progressive household yeah. that, that, uh, that you know, inculcates in you certain values. But your socialization also takes place in the general cult cultural atmosphere mm -hmm. in which you're embedded. Yeah. And the general cultural atmosphere of America was not one that entreated, I'm saying this mm -hmm. as someone who uh, loves this country very much and yeah. respects this country, but the general, until quite recently in our nation's history, was not one that entreated whites to see blacks as their equals. Yeah. Was not Jay. one to say, right? If a, Look, if a, in the 1950s and 1960s, if a white girl brought home a black man it was a problem. And said, Dad, I'm marrying this. The, the, the quickest test I have for mm -hmm. any kind of racial litmus test is this. If a white person brought home a black person and said, I'm marrying this person, would, would a progressive parent said, I'm cool with that? Yeah. And if you raise an eyebrow, there's we, something going wrong. Because if you see that that's person a great question. As, your e as your equal, then we gotta go. what's the issue? We got to go. We're out of time. All Jay, right, thank you so much, man. Alright, we'll be back next week everyone. This is Mike and Jason. This is Into the Gap. <laughs>